The following podcast may contain topics relating to anxiety or depression, which may be distressing to some people. If you need someone to talk to, call Strokeline on 1-800-787-653 or Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice. To enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's National Stroke Foundation and sponsored by Allegan. It's very normal to feel strong emotions after a stroke, like being sad or angry or frightened or even positive emotions such as hope and gratitude and love. The strong reactions usually get easier over time, but it's also common for people to have longer-lasting difficulties, such as depression and anxiety. These can make life for a stroke survivor extra challenging, but even so, they can be treated and recovery is common. Today we're going to ask why people experience depression and anxiety after stroke, what it feels like, and how to get help that works. We'll be speaking to researcher Marie Hackett from the George Institute in Sydney about her research on depression after stroke, and we'll talk to Simone Russell from Strokeline about getting support. First, though, we're lucky to have a genuine movie star on the line. Luke Webb is a Sydney-based actor who's performed on stage, television and film, including a key role in the Australian feature Circle of Lies. Things changed for Luke when he had a stroke aged just 20 years old. However, he's since returned to acting as well as lobbying for more government action on stroke, most notably by riding his bicycle to Canberra to deliver a petition. Luke, thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. I don't know about genuine movie star, but um, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Could you please start by telling us your stroke story? It was back in 2013. I just turned 20. Life was great. Things were on the up, really happening. I took some time out, did a little bit of travel for about a month or so, and um, I actually developed a DVT, which is deep vein thrombosis, in my left leg. And that eventually, um, that clot eventually went to my brain, um, and that caused um, a stroke. So I imagine there were some, like, big physical effects on you but how did it affect you emotionally you know it's funny because whenever i talk to people and and i've done you know quite a few of these interviews over the past few years uh, one big thing about stroke is a lot of people and i'm not being cynical when i say this but a lot of people really i think only and i myself as well did as well uh, perceive that stroke was just had just physical disabilities that, that came with it, you know. Um, uh, I think uh, not a lot of people realise that there's a lot of mental factors that follow a stroke, and, and that's not really talked about. A, a lot of people don't talk about it, and um, I didn't talk about it quite a while either. You know, being that being that young and 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 having having mates at the same age and um, always being fit and healthy, but probably couldn't tell you how it made me feel on this G-rated podcast. But more politely, it just made me feel worthless and uh, made me feel like uh, like you're a nobody. You become a victim, and, and and you just feel ashamed. That's how that that was my they were they were the initial feelings I had originally when it happened. I felt worthless and helpless. Was there a point where you you realised that you weren't really coping and that you needed to get some help? You know what, Chris, that came quite down the track. You know, I'd had the stroke, and and then I I started rehabbing that, and the whole time my mental my mental state was in a really bad way. It wasn't until that one, one day I, I really hit a brick wall and um, and, and I realised that, that I needed help and um, and that things weren't going to be okay if I didn't seek that help. What did you do then? What did you um, what did you do to get, to get that help? 
and to get back on track? I'm always a strong believer in you, you, you need to hit rock bottom. You know, the, the, the only, there's nothing wrong with hitting rock bottom because the only way up is from there. And I really believe in the fact that sometimes people do need to hit rock bottom before they can fix themselves again. And uh, I kind of did hit rock bottom. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't talk to anyone about how I was feeling. I didn't share that with anybody. On the outside, I had this huge smile and Everything seemed rosy and, you know, everyone was so proud of how well I was doing in, in rehab and that. But on the inside, uh, yeah, I, was, I was like a lost, a lost child. I, I, um, I, I, used to, I used to curl up in a ball some mornings in bed and, and not want to get out of bed. It's taken a long time for me to be able to talk about this, but I've, um, eventually it got to the point where I, I started to have thoughts about taking my own life, even thinking about acting on those thoughts and it was then that I realized hey I'm better than this I, I, I realized hey you know what yes I'm a victim but I shouldn't be ashamed that I'm a victim because I did absolutely nothing wrong for this to happen to me and I think that's the first step with anyone who's a victim of anything whether a victim of a disease or a crime you, you need to you need to realize not be ashamed for being a victim because you did absolutely nothing wrong and pretty much you're just a victim for breathing really so and and that's and that's when I realized hey I, I need help when I realized that and thought hey you know I, I, I'm better than this and I need some help, and I'm going to get through this, but I need to deal with this, and I need to deal with this in, in, in my own way. And that was when I, 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 I seeked help, and I started to um, speak with a medical professional. But at the same time, I also opened up to my friends and family as well. And that was like a huge weight off my shoulders because they were all just so supportive. Everybody was so supportive. And I think that was a big thing as well. I don't know if it goes for everybody, but for me anyway, it was how, you know, are people going to support me? Are they going to be ashamed of me? Are they going to, you know, I was embarrassed a lot as well. You know, there's a stigma with mental health that comes with mental health as well. You know, I'm a guy, you know, it's fine. How, how, what are they going to think? Once you talk to someone about it, they were just so supportive and, and, and just it's just such a great help when you've got that support network of friends, family, medical professionals who um, support you. It makes you feel like you're worth something and it really does make you feel like you can conquer the demon within yeah. What would you then, I guess, recommend uh, to someone who's in that kind of similar situation and, and can't at that point see that, that hope that you eventually were able to identify? As blunt as it is, and I, and I, only, I only say it because um, I did it for way too long. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Wake up one morning, realize that, hey, you're still breathing, you're still alive, and things are never as bad as they seem. One thing that I really didn't realize, and someone put it to me, quite a while after and, and that's what I do tell a lot of people is that no matter how hard you think you've got it off there's always going to be someone else in the world that has it worse off than you so my advice is 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 to stop feeling sorry for yourself you can take a horse to water but you can't make a drink so you know you can have all the support in the world but nobody can help you unless you want to help yourself you need to realize realize that that's not you and understand that work through it with yourself with your family and friends and stop feeling sorry for yourself and go get help but first and foremost, don't be afraid to talk to someone, to, to let someone know how you're feeling, that you're not coping, because it's not your fault. As I said before, 
don't be ashamed to be a victim because there is absolutely nothing that you could have done to prevent this. In some cases there are, but in many cases when it comes to stroke especially, sometimes it just comes down to, to the pick of the draw, you know. A quite a number of strokes are just can't be prevented and um, they happen and you shouldn't feel ashamed or feel sorry for yourself or think why me or think about what you could have done better in life or be happy that you're still alive and just talk about it. Talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. That's the best thing I can say. Talk to someone about it. Well, thank you very much. That's good advice. And um, and thank you for being so open and sharing your story with us today. No worries, mate. Thank you. I hope we see more of you up on the screen soon. <laughs> I hope so too, actually. That was Stroke Survivor and upcoming movie star, Luke Webb. If you need someone to talk to, call Strokeline on 1-800-787-653 or Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. Did you know you can customise the Enable Me website to suit all your viewing needs? You can choose large size fonts or different alignment of text on your screen, a high contrast screen so that different parts stand out, automatically underline the start and end of each sentence, read in easy English and many more options. Set up once and your personal settings are saved for all your future visits. Just click on the accessibility icon at the top of the screen at enableme.org.au. Our next guest is Associate Professor Marie Hackett. Marie is Acting Director of the Neurological and Mental Health Division of the George Institute for Global Health in Sydney. She's a background in health psychology and epidemiology, and her current research is focused on depression in cardiovascular diseases such as stroke. Thank you very much for joining us, Marie. That's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I guess one of the first questions, one thing we've been thinking about is how common is depression and anxiety after stroke? It's common. It's very common. Uh, and in fact, it's almost unusual not to have it at some point. So if you look at all the really good quality research studies that have been conducted in people who have had a stroke, in the first year, about half of them will experience depression symptoms of clinical concern. And at any one time, if we just take a group of people who have had a stroke, about one in three have got depressive symptoms that would concern us. That number might drop to a proportion, might drop to about one in four, between one and five years after stroke. But that's, that's a lot of people experiencing depression. Given that stroke itself such a traumatic event, there's you know, bound to be many different emotions involved. But how do you actually decide it when it reaches this clinical stage that you, um, you can diagnose depression or anxiety? Yeah, that's a really good and a very important question. If I asked you, Chris, how you were feeling today uh, compared to how you were feeling maybe a month ago, your sleep might have changed, so you might be a bit tired, your diet might have changed, you know, there's lots of chocolate and hot cross buns around, so maybe you're eating more than normal. Or maybe you're, you've given up some things because it's the lead up to Easter, so you're eating less. So all of these things, changes in diet, changes in sleep, changes in your mood changes in what you're interested in, they're all symptoms that go together to make up what we call depression. Now, what's different from what people who have a, one or more of these symptoms experiencing those on a daily basis from someone who has clinical depression is that that combination of symptoms impact on your ability to be you. And by impact, I mean it's a sort of a functional impact. You don't want to go to work or you're unable to go to work if you were previously in paid work. You don't want to get off the couch and make your meal. You might not want to leave your house. You don't want to see your grandkids who you used to have great fun seeing. You don't want to see your family, perhaps. So the difference between someone who has lots of symptoms of abnormal mood that don't bother you, you're just aware that you're a bit tired today or you're a bit hungry or you've eaten too much. The really big key factor is that it impacts on your ability to be you. And that's what we call the functional impairment. And without the functional impairment, you don't have depression. 
Same as you don't have anxiety without that functional impairment. Do you want to ask you also about the um, cause? You know, what causes these uh, these effects after a stroke? But just to let you know, we, we do um, with our podcast, we put out a call to our listeners for, for questions. Um, and of course, for this one, we've had some big ones. And there's there's been um, questions about you know damages to particular particular parts of the brain from the stroke. One person saying they believe their stroke has affected their ability to feel positive emotions. Is this the kind of thing that can cause depression? Look, it's a really appealing idea that where the damage occurs in your brain might put you at greater risk of experiencing depression or anxiety or other changes in your mood. And despite all the studies that have been done, there's been no consistent evidence to show that we can say, look, you've had a lesion, so that's what we call the damaged part to your brain. You've had a lesion in the, the, the back right-hand side, and that means you've, you're going to have depression. The correlation's just not that clear. And it's possibly because the way we find out where your lesion is, those imaging studies might still be a bit crude. Or it might be that there's multiple aspects that make up your risk of having depression. So it not, might not just be the damage. It's, it's a big thing having a stroke. Now, it's, it's a life-threatening event that can drastically change your own impression of you and what you used to be able to do. There's definitely a distinctive, what we call a reactive depression. Something untoward has happened and you're reacting to that. And in fact, it's kind of normal to have that sort of reaction after a big life-changing event like a stroke, where it becomes not normal is if that reaction for that low mood persists for a long time. Equally unpleasant, regardless of whether there is what we would call a biological cause for the depression versus a reactive cause, it doesn't change how we manage the depression. So in some ways, it doesn't really matter. We do think that if you've had a very bad stroke, so there may be a bigger lesion rather than where the, where the lesion is located, maybe that knocks out part of the mood centre. But again, that, those data aren't very strong. Okay. It's um, very valuable information to, to hear. I guess given this, what, you're, what you're saying about these kind of various causes and impacts, what is the connection, the, I guess, the back and forth between uh, these emotional problems and physical complications, things like fatigue and, and that sort of thing? Well, fatigue has maybe maybe fatigue after stroke looks different from fatigue before stroke. So if I just take a step back and the way depression presents and the, the symptoms that go together to make up depression and anxiety, that looks exactly the same before stroke as it does after stroke. So depression is depression. With fatigue, there's actually possibly a difference that occurs after stroke. So general fatigue and what we call the general population happens when you've overexerted yourself, you've been up too long in a day or your sleep has been interrupted, so you just feel tired. And when you have a rest or a sleep, that resolves your fatigue. You don't feel fatigued anymore. After stroke, you get this interesting type of fatigue that is persistent and it's not resolved by having a nap or having a good sleep. So the fatigue looks a bit different and then if you're fatigued, you might be less likely to undertake your usual physical activities and that leads you on to being a little bit more sluggish generally, regardless of whether or not you've had a stroke. Stroke for a lot of people causes functional problems, so that, you know they have movement changes, they have mobility changes, it's not as easy to walk around. So that also impacts on their ability or desire to undertake physical activity, which in turn then makes you more sedentary and more, more likely to be fatigued. So it's quite a nasty cycle and there is that use it or lose it mentality. So people who, who have fatigue are Will, will probably be encouraged by their clinician to maintain whatever activities they can and that's where you want to work with someone who, who knows what to do with someone who's had a stroke and you can have Tai Chi delivered while you're sitting in a chair and do yoga from a chair. You don't have to be running around the house to get 
that physical activity to help with your fatigue. Um, thinking what you said there about the, how you know, depression can affect people who haven't had a stroke as well, I suppose the other side of this is carers can also suffer from emotional problems if, uh, if the person they're looking after has had a stroke. Yes, that's quite common too. And it's a, again, once again, it's an understandable byproduct. So not only has the person who's had a stroke's life changed, their carer might, might not be someone who delivers high-intensity care, but they might be their partner or family member who sees them quite often can also experience depression. Same thing, same method of diagnosis, same group of symptoms go together to make up that diagnosis of depression. And then, then you're in the trouble where the carer also is dealing with their own issues and it can be quite a lot of frustration will develop between the carer and the person who's had a stroke uh, and communication can be tough. So that's why it's really important that uh, your general practitioner knows if you're feeling down, your general practitioner knows if your partner's feeling down and that people are quite open about the things they're feeling. Uh, and as I mentioned right at the beginning, it, it's almost odd not to experience some sort of mood problem after a stroke. You need to look for help if you're experiencing these things because you don't want a whole family of people who are at home because they're depressed. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the, the other side of it then. What, what, what are the treatments? What are the, what are the positive things that can be done? Well, there's a whole series of things that can start from very simple. So if you've got access to a computer or a smartphone, and the internet, you can do some guided self-help type of therapies. There's um, online things called, uh, one of them is called Mood Gym, where you can log in and it takes you through some of the same steps that a therapist would take you through. But this way you can do them yourself in the privacy of your own home at your own pace. Uh, and so they'll ask you some questions that will help you have a look at your thinking patterns and they might suggest some ways to train you to think a bit differently and that might help with your motivation and your mood and your ability to get around. That's quite good for if you've got mild or low level depressive symptoms. So you might be feeling down but it's not having a massive impact on your day-to-day -day life. Once the symptoms start getting to the point where you're really, really noticing that it's impacting on what you used to do. So it's, you're not going to work or you're not eating properly or you're not talking to anyone. Then you probably want to go the next step up where you go and talk to your GP. And your GP has the ability to do a couple of things. One, they can uh, organise for you to talk to someone about your mood. And for those who need to do that, there's some Medicare-funded talking sessions that you can get up to 10 that are subsidised by the government. So hopefully money wouldn't be an issue and you're getting access to those services so long as you've got the services in your area. And the talking therapies are really good if you get in early when the symptoms are mild because it helps you to change your thinking and your practices before the symptoms develop into something less manageable. If your symptoms hit you and you're very disabled right from the start, your GP will prescribe you an antidepressant. There's a lot of different types of antidepressants, some old ones, some new ones. They all do the same thing. The GP will talk to you about how they interact with any other medications you're on because that's important to know. And you also want your GP to tell you when to come back so that you can have your mood assessed to see whether the dose needs to be changed or whether your medication needs to be changed because about 50% of people don't like their first antidepressant so they go on to a different one and that might be side effects usually that, that would make them go back and then you also want to know at what point do I start to say okay I think my symptoms are gone can we look at taking me off my antidepressant looking at your research history you've covered some of these um uh, these antidepressant treatments as as well what what kind of things do you look at in your um, research one of the things I do is look at uh, the totality of the 
research that has been published. So I bring it all together in something called a systematic review. So you don't just get the results from one antidepressant trial, you get the results from 15 antidepressant trials. And that's how I can say we know that um, antidepressants work if you're depressed. Uh, there's a little, you've got to balance out the benefit and risk, so we know they also cause some side effects, but they do treat depression to remission. For talking therapies, if you're very depressed, there's less evidence. That's why I suggested that if you get in early when your symptoms are mild, you can ameliorate your symptoms and, and slow the development or ho- hopefully stop the development to full-blown depression. We also do some other stuff where we're providing in a current trial antidepressants to people immediately after a stroke regardless of whether or not they've got depression. Because there's some evidence in a small trial conducted in France that showed that antidepressants actually improve your physical function. So you have less uh, restrictions, you might be able to walk better, might be able to move your arm better or your face better after three months of treatment. There's our trial, which we've called Affinity in Australia, and there's a trial of the same design being conducted in the UK called Focus, and another one, in Sweden called EFFECT and we're combining all our trial results and by the end of all three trials we'll have uh, over 6,000 patients to look at the data to see if that is true, do antidepressants improve physical function. In addition to that we're of course looking at the impact on depression and giving antidepressants as a preventative strategy. So far we haven't had any strong evidence for that. Okay well look that um, that is very promising I guess these are that sort of thing you're looking at. I mean I guess it's a reminder that uh, how amazing the brain is and how everything is connected. The brain is one amazing organ. <laughs> and and that's the difficulty with the brain is we don't really understand all the connections. So it can be very frustrating if you're sitting in front of a clinician who, who is unable to give you a straight answer to those questions like, has my stroke caused my depression? Okay, well, thank you very much for, um, for sharing this information with us, uh, Marie. I'm sure that you're going to get some very interesting results out of your, your current trials. Thank you. I really hope we do too. Yeah, and thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. Associate Professor Marie Hackett from the George Institute. Setting goals is crucial to stroke recovery. Goals can be as simple as walking to the letterbox to check the mail or bigger goals like getting back to work. Enable Me has a unique tool where you and your carer or family can plan what you want to achieve, track how you are progressing and celebrate your successes. You can also connect with other people who set goals similar to yours and challenge or inspire each other. You can even set up a blog to write down how you are feeling and share your own story. And don't forget, our professionals from Stroke client can help with personalized and confidential advice to help you grow stronger after stroke. Visit enableme.org.au. Finally today, we have our most regular guest, occupational therapist Simone Russell from the Stroke Foundation Stroke Line. Thanks for coming in again, Simone. Thank you for having me, Chris. How many of these podcasts have you done now? I think I've lost count. I think I'm on a few. Okay, okay. <laughs> I usually hear I ask you about your um, perspective as a therapist. So we're talking about depression and anxiety. How often does that affect people's recovery after stroke? Yeah, look, I think it's something that comes up on a daily basis on Stroke Line and certainly on our website, Enable Me. It's prevalent for stroke survivors to experience depression and anxiety or at least symptoms of it at some stage and you know both together or separately as well. And does it affect their ability to participate in other parts of the recovery and rehabilitation? Yeah absolutely I mean I think um, as Marie's touched on a stroke is a major life event or a major traumatic event and so it naturally um, does affect somebody's um, ability to adjust to, to life after stroke and depending too on their level of physical disability, any cognitive changes, any communication difficulties. You've also got things like pain and fatigue that can also impact on someone's recovery and um, also 
um, exacerbate someone's or change, you know, alter someone's mood. So it's, you know, it's really um, can affect relationships. It can affect how someone might participate in rehabilitation. Someone that's experiencing depression or anxiety may withdraw from rehabilitation or withdraw from some of their relationships. There's that fear of a second stroke or of another stroke, which we've talked about on a previous podcast. And that's something else that can also consume people one when they're on that road to recovery um, that can certainly limit or impact on their ability to um, participate in in rehabilitation. There's so much so much going on, you know. The fit, they might be fearful of the future. It might be, you know, raising questions like the mean, what, you know, what's the meaning of life? Why has this happened to me? And it, it, there can come a real, uh, I guess, loss or lack of control as well after stroke, which can definitely impact on people um, and in terms of their mood and, and how they respond to, to life after stroke. So, you know, it can affect really every area, it can affect their sleep, can affect their, their appetite. So whether they're hungry or not, you know, you get both extremes, perhaps overeating or undereating. That obviously then affects your energy levels and ability to participate in rehabilitation. So, you know, really mood and um, depression and anxiety can affect every aspect of someone's recovery. As you said, it can affect the way people interact with the rest of the world, which I guess makes it extra hard because they need to do, they need to talk to someone to get some help in this in this context. So how do people start that conversation? How do they speak to a health professional about about getting some help? Yeah, look, I think it's a really big challenge for, for many people, not all. I see particularly men struggle to um, open up and talk about uh, their mood and their feelings that can be a particular challenge. I get a lot of callers from carers or the female carers or partners, friends, family, often on behalf of the male stroke survivor. So that is something that that I think needs to change. But look, I would say, you know, find someone that you trust in the team. If you are actively seeing a rehabilitation team, you know, perhaps go to that person that you trust the most in the team. We all have different relationships with different therapists and different family members and friends. So find someone that you trust to start with, that you feel comfortable opening up to. It may be the doctor, it may be the occupational therapist, it may be the physio or the speech pathologist, you know, just find somebody. It could be the nurse on the ward or it may actually be a family or a friend, a family member or a friend where you start and then give them consent to actually raise it with the team as well. If you're already in the community, you've finished rehabilitation in the hospital, obviously the GP is another good starting point, which Marie also touched on and I think um, Luke as well. So really just, I think, coming up with somebody that you can start to share that information, but someone that you know is going to have access to the right information and support and be able to direct you to the next stage of getting help but starting a conversation is really important Mm, which I guess conversation I mean that's gonna make it extra difficult for people who might have aphasia after their stroke they've got extra barriers then to, to getting support so what do you say about that about someone who has aphasia and can't communicate so effectively yes look it, it, it's definitely um, again it's very prevalent for people with aphasia or communication difficulties to experience uh, depression after stroke the, the risk or rates are higher for this particular group of people that do have communication difficulties I think you know it's um, having that close working relationship with the speech pathologist and making sure that, you know, that stroke survivor has a clear communication style that they're able to have opportunities to express how they're feeling. And certainly um, the speech pathologist and the rest of the rehabilitation team would be keeping an eye out in particular for this group. But I think, you know, making sure that the family and friends are able to communicate with them as well so that they can actually indicate if there's an issue with their feelings through another means of communication. And that might be through using a communication book or, you know, pointing to a picture of, you know, feeling sad, um, that kind of thing, depending on the 
level of aphasia. What are your top tips then for, for stroke survivors or for carers who are who are coping with um, depression and anxiety? Yeah, so I think, you know, acknowledging, accepting and education is, is probably my first um, tip. So really acknowledging that there is a, a challenge there with mood, whether that's anxiety or depression. And, you know, anxiety can show up as fear or worries, excessive worrying. You know, I think the first thing is to really ask for help when you do acknowledge and accept that there is a, there is an issue. Um, as um, I think today has been evident, the conversation, you know, it's much um, more likely that you'll have a better outcome if you seek help earlier on. And so while it might feel a bit scary to get help and to accept that this is a problem for you, but to not let sort of stigma or anything like that stop you and, and to ask for that help. You know, there are many strategies. Marie certainly touched on some, but there's talking therapies. There's different techniques you can use within talking therapies, um, like cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness, um, you know, but accepting that as well, you have been through a major life event. So it is also part of sort of, I guess, the human experience when we go through these traumatic events that there will be an adjustment period. And I think Marie um, termed it, I think the reactive sort of depression or reactive mood. I think that's really nice to understand that, you know, there might be a period where your mood is affected. um, And if you get in early and have the strategies and it could be self-help strategies like particular books or apps that can also help you get, get through if it is a sort of mild presentation. But, you know, loss of independence, the financial pressures, you might be not able to work or drive. So there's so many different variables that can come can come into play when our mood's affected after stroke. So really just acknowledging that and accepting it and really starting from there. So my second tip is seeking support, um, which we've touched on, you know, talking about it, starting a conversation. There are many different ways you can access support. So it might be through the GP and getting a, a formal psychology referral, as Marie touched on, there is uh, Medicare, Medicare subsidised sessions available to make it more accessible. Um, some rehabilitation teams have a psychologist on their team, which can be fantastic, or a social worker that may be able to provide some counselling and some um, support. There's also um, obviously medication as another option to talk to your GP or to get a referral to a psychiatrist if medication needs to be looked at. But the other things are, you know, things like um, online support. So Enable Me is a perfect example where many people come for that peer support. We have peer support groups out across Australia um, for stroke survivors. So attending a stroke support group and carers are usually welcome at those groups as well. The other um, options, things like StrokeLine, where um, available from nine till five. If you wanted to have a talk about a more personalised sort of plan for or next steps about where to deal with your, how to deal with your mood and where to go. We also have um, Lifeline and, and Beyond Blue are fantastic resources in the community, particularly Lifeline at a 24 hour service. So they're also other options to think about depending on the severity of your symptoms. The other thing to note too is I guess with carers, Marie touched on, you know, depression and anxiety after stroke. It's not just um, it's something that affects the stroke survivor, it can affect the carers. So I guess having open communication between the carer and the stroke survivor, the carer may also want to access a mental health care plan through the GP and seek psychological support because that's going to help give them the skills and strategies to understand perhaps why their partner, why the stroke survivor is behaving or um, perhaps, you know, responding or acting in certain ways um, and giving them the tools and strategies to manage as well. And there's um, Carer Gateway and Carers Australia as well for carers, which can be really supportive. The support groups, though, I think a lot of carers go 
along with uh, their their partners to that and that can be really helpful and you know looking at it from a holistic approach um, as well you know looking at sleep looking at pain management looking at um, fatigue all of those other things that can come into it diet for example as well and exercise so so important in stimulating the happy hormones so there's you know it's it needs to be um, I guess a, a holistic rounded approach and the last tip I would have I think I say this nearly every time is really to have kindness and compassion for yourself um, if you have had a stroke or if you are feeling a little flat or a little low in your recovery you know to have kindness and compassion that you are doing the best you can and you know if you follow some of the suggestions on the podcast that hopefully you start to see a little bit more of a trend up um, in your emotions and mood um, but yeah that to take one day at a time and to, to seek that support. Brilliant. Well thank you very much Simone. Now you can of course ask your own questions of Simone and the other health professionals on Strokeline by calling 1-800-787-653 or 1-800-STROKE and also if you know, have concerns after this discussion um, that have been raised you can you can call Strokeline Business Hours you can also contact Beyond Blue on 1-300-224636 or beyondblue.org.au or for urgent 24-hour support you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And that's all we have time for today. If you like what you've heard, please give us a good rating and review on iTunes. That will help other people to find our podcast and give us a good feeling too, I think, which is what we're all about here. Uh, and thank you again to our guests, Luke Webb, Marie Hackett and Simone Russell. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at our website, enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. We also have health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your health professional. If you would like to suggest a topic or provide feedback, contact us via the website enableme.org.au. The music in this podcast is Signs by stroke survivor Antonio Ianella and his band, The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio Studio, which you can find out more about at www.studio499. That's F-O-U-R-99.org.au. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the National Stroke Foundation in Australia with the support of Allegan. At Allergan, we know every stroke is different and so is every recovery. After stroke, many people have muscle weakness and loss of movement, but you might also be experiencing tight muscles or stiffness in your arms, fingers or legs. It's called spasticity. You might have muscle spasms or uncontrollable jerky movements in your arms or legs, changes in your posture or unusual limb positions, and it can cause pain. It can be treated though. Physiotherapy or occupational therapy can help you adapt and improve your movement. There are other possibilities too, such as injections with botulinum toxin type A, electrical stimulation of the muscles, electromyograph or EMG biofeedback and muscle relaxing medication. What is important is to start your rehabilitation as soon as possible after a stroke and to discuss your goals and progress with your rehabilitation team at every stage. Allegan is proud to bring you this Enable Me podcast.